Amen. Hey, you guys can go ahead and be seated. If you're with us for the first time, um, know we recognize that we do have water coming from our ceiling. It's just part of being a church plant, right? That's, that's who we are. We are a church plant. Um, we've got water dripping down, so just bear with us. Uh, here we are. Uh, one of our core values here um, at New City Church is authentic relationships. So if you're with us for the first time, know that we, we truly value you. Um, we value you as a person. Um, we want to get to know you. We, we want to walk this journey with you with this thing called life. Um, because, you know, with that said, one of the things that we believe is most important for us is, to, is for people to invest in people. We want to invest in you. Uh, we want to invest in your family. Everything we do here, it's intentionally built uh, with the purpose of making disciples, planting churches, and planting churches all over the world. And we hope that you'll give us a few weeks. We just hope that you'll give us a few weeks to jump in uh, and get into the mission with us. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to 2 Timothy. We're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, we're in week 5 of our Multiply series. Um, so don't worry, you're not behind. Um, I can catch you up in about 20 seconds, okay? Uh, Paul, he's in prison, about to die for his faith, and he's writing this letter to Timothy. Timothy is a young Christian. He's, in, he's writing to encourage Timothy in the faith. And so the message, he's, he's writing him so the message of the gospel will continue to pass on, um, past him. So, you know, something we've said over and over again the past few weeks is the gospel, it can't stop with us. It has to pass through us. So we've seen God has given us a message of the gospel, and his method to get the message of the gospel all over the world is to be passed through faithful men and women. So God has a method for his mission, and his method is people investing in people. So there's your little, your little clip to get you caught up. And with that said, I want to bring, you, uh, bring up something about my past that I'm not really that proud of. Okay? When I was in high school, I wasn't the best student. I wasn't necessarily like a bad student. You know, I just didn't really try. Um, I, did I did just enough to get by. Uh, I knew exactly what I needed to do to get a B, and I did just that. I did nothing more nothing less. Whatever I had to do to get a B, that's what I did. I did, however, work hard at a few things. Uh, one of them was to work really, really hard at distracting the teacher. Um, and I just happened to be pretty good at it. I was friendly and kind to the teachers. Uh, I would give them hugs, you know, I would smile and kind of make friends with them. And then I would come in and just distract them. So I was pretty good at it. For example, we didn't have air conditioning when I was in high school. Uh, so the windows, they were often open. In my geometry class, uh, all year long, I would very sporadically and subtly just go, <whistles> just make little bird sounds. You know, all year long, and the teacher, that teacher was looking for this bird all year long. Everybody in the class, they went along with it. They said they saw the bird. And on the last day of class, we finally told them that I was the bird. So we, that was one of them. We had, we had another thing that we did. It was called tricks and trigonometry. It happened to be math class every time, apparently. And about once a week, we would do just little small tricks to our teacher. We would drop the pencil at the same time, every, you know, as, as a designated time, all at the same time. Um, one time, we, we all pretended to fall asleep at the same time. And one time, we had a brilliant idea. We're all going to just fall out of our chair at the same time. I, on the, unfortunately, was the only one that did it. Um, so I fell out, made a fool of myself, um, but I had one teacher specifically. She was really, really chipper. She was really, also really, really easy to get distracted. She loved four things. She loved, uh, 
she was engaged, so she loved her fiancé. She loved wedding planning and her dog, Bo. The fourth thing that she happened to love uh, were quizzes, pop quizzes. So we would talk about wedding planning, and, you know, we'd get a good 10-minute distraction going on. We'd talk about her fiancé, maybe a good another 8 or 10 minutes. Uh, and about twice a week, this bell would ring, and she would come in. You know, she'd have this real high-pitched voice. She'd say, we've got a little pop quiz. You know, she was just really... It didn't really sit right. It kind of made, it kind of lurked me a little bit. And that pop quiz, it was always on the homework. So what did I do? I always brought up her dog, Bo. And so whenever we brought up Bo, her dog, she would come in and we'd get a good 20 minutes of study time. So that's what we did. Um, every now and then I would uh, pass, the, pass the quiz. Sometimes I didn't, sometimes I did. But here's the point. We can all get distracted easily. We all get easily distracted. If we have a purpose and a goal in mind... We have to limit distractions. Good employees limit distractions. Hardworking athletes limit what distracts them. Good students and teachers, we have to limit distractions to help create good learning environments. So the same thing is true in the Christian life. There are things as followers of Christ that can distract us. So in our passage today, one of the things we're going to see is we're going to see specifically how words can distract us. Words, specifically words. We're, we're going to see a great showdown. There's two different workers here. So think of Jim versus Dwight, um, the good worker and the bad worker, the distracted worker and the unashamed worker. I'll leave it up to you to see which one is which. And so we're going to see specifically how the use of words, what we say, what we talk about, how it's one indicator that differentiates between the good workman and the bad workman. We're going to see how our words can distract us and how they can also build us up. So with that said, here's our main point. Christian, be careful with your words. Be careful with your words. This is not just for pastors. This is not just for people who are in vocational ministry, for professional Christians. This is for every single person who calls himself a Christian. We need to be careful with our words. So being a Christian, it's not not only an identity. You know, it is an identity, it's, a, you know, it's not only a name tag, a belief, but being a Christian is also an activity. So when someone claims, to just follow me here, when someone claims to be a Christian, they're identifying that we believe in Jesus. But we also are identifying that we're following Jesus. Following something is an activity. Following something is something that we do. So following Jesus is the activity of a Christian. So if Jesus says, hey, let's go this way, but we go another way, we're not following Jesus, are we? So this is important for us to get right and understand. What makes us a Christian is believing in Jesus, believing that Jesus has done everything necessary to save us, following Jesus, and then I'll say this, obeying Jesus is evidence that you believe in Jesus. Obeying Jesus is evidence that we believe in Jesus. It's an indicator. So if I point to a chair, hey, there's a chair right there. And I say, do you trust that this chair is going to hold you? Well, if I say, and you say, well, maybe. Say, okay, sit in it. If you don't sit in it, you don't trust it. Right? You don't trust the chair. You see, our actions, they reveal what we believe to be true. Our Our activity, what we do, our activity is evidence of our belief. To continue with this idea, we must remember that our belief drives our action. What we believe must drive what we do. What we believe must drive what we do. Belief, it always comes first. So what often happens 
where it's often missed in the Christian world is uh, that we, is we expect people to act right whether they believe it or not. We expect people to act right before they actually believe anything. And this is so important for us to remember in this text because our, our, our text for today, it's saying, do this, don't do that, right? Act right, speak right, do this, be right. But we can't forget it always follows the truth of the gospel. In every single one of Paul's letters, every single one of them, he starts with, first believe the gospel. Now, because you believe in Jesus, because of this, because of what we believe, because we believe that the resurrection is true, because you believe that Christ rose from the dead, your life can't be the same. It demands a new life. It demands a new direction. So with that said, we're going to see a few different examples of that evidence with the good worker and the bad worker. So if you have your Bibles, look at chapter 2 in 2 Timothy. We're going to follow along with me in first, starting in verse 14. It'll be up on the screen if you don't have your Bibles with you. Um, so follow along with me. This is what it says. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So Paul's continuing his thought here saying, basically saying everything I just told you, we must continually remind them of this. Last week we talked about how the gospel endures. It endures by grace. It endures through discipleship. And then it also endures in the resurrection. That's what we saw last week. And so he's saying we have to remind each other of these things. We must remind people. We must remind those that we disciple as we seek to multiply. We have to keep watch on what we're multiplying. You see, we, we're all multipliers, but we have to consider what we're multiplying. We're all multiplying something, so what are we multiplying? Last week, again, we saw how in discipleship, we, we, need, to, we need to entrust the gospel to faithful men. We need to be able to teach others who are then able to teach others and then are able to teach others also. So it's not surprising that Timothy comes up with this. That's what we looked at last week. And then he comes up and he follows it up with words. Because how do we proclaim the gospel? We proclaim it with words. What do we need to teach the truth of the gospel? We need words. We learn a lot through our actions. We learn a lot through nonverbal interactions. We learn a lot by watching. But what we believe, it's a message. We, we, everything we put our trust in, it's a person, but it's a person. If we have a message about a person, it's words, though. If people do not hear the words of Jesus, if we don't use the right words, people can't believe the true gospel. They can't know God. And they're left in their sin and they're without hope. So, without a doubt, we have to say today that words matter. But we can all do, sort, we can, we can do all sort of good deeds, you know, we can all do sort of kind actions. But if we don't use words, if we don't speak, the message can't be heard and they can't believe. So words are both necessary and essential. So this is the first thing he tells Timothy. Right? He says, watch your words because they matter. 
Timothy, be careful with your words. Brother and sister, today, be, be reminded, be careful with your words. If you're a Christian today, this is for you. We all need to be reminded to be careful with our words. But if you're not a Christian here today, I think this should at least intrigue you. Right? Maybe, maybe you've heard the saying, sticks and stones, they'll break your bones, but words, they'll never hurt you. And I think, I hope that you might be able to agree with us. And what we're saying here today is that I think that's just plain crazy. Right? Because words hurt. Words can destroy and words can mislead. Words can both give a life and they can also, they can also they can give life and they can also hurt life. Right? They can give and they can take away. If you've been hurt, if you've been misled by words today, I hope at the very least you would hear us saying this is not the way the world's supposed to be. We just listen to each other. We listen to each other talk and the way we talk. We know that something's not right. We can, we can, today, I hope that you'll see that God has given us a different way. He's given us a new direction. He's given us a different design than the way the world portrays words. Because words are powerful. Brother and sister, let's think about our words. Are they distracting or are they pointing towards truth? Because God's mission is to multiply a message all over the world, and it happens through faithful men, it happens through faithful workers, faithful disciple-makers. In this passage, we have the positive and negative example of those two different workers. One is a faithful disciple-maker, and one is not. So we're going to use our great showdown today between our two workers as our outline. See it up on the screen there. Uh, We have the good worker, the bad worker, and then to make things a little spicy, uh, we're going to see the ultimate worker, Okay. So whenever someone asks me, uh, do you want the good news or the bad news first? I always ask for the bad news. That's just the way I work, right? I want to hear the bad news first because then I like to end with the good news. So that's what we're starting with, the bad worker. Look back at verse 14. He says, remind them of these things and charge them before God, not the quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. And then look down at verse 16 and 18, 16 to 18. It says, but avoid irreverent babble. For it will, it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. So we've got a list of things not to do, and they're all centered around words. So Paul is saying, don't quarrel about words because it messes people up. He says specifically, he says, it ruins people. It ruins the person that hears it. And then he says, it goes down later, he says, avoid irreverent babble. It causes more babbling. It, it spreads. You know, babbling, it's really cute for someone, um, you know, who's learning how to talk. My two-year-old, you know, she, uh, she babbles all the time. You know, it's, not, it's generally not very understandable. Um, she's making up words. She's in her own little world just singing, you know, talking to her uh, babies in a different language is what it sounds like. And I often watch her. I'm like, what are you saying? You know, I have, I'm just so curious of what's going on. She's in her, in her little mind. And then next thing you know, bam, full sentence is coming out of her mouth, right? She's just like, mommy, I want some milk. Mommy, I want to eat a snack. Daddy, where's mommy? Where's Stockton? Daddy, where's Addie? Mommy, I want mommy. Mommy, mommy, mommy. Daddy, I don't want you. Daddy, I want mommy, right? That's just the way it works in our house. She's without a doubt in a mommy stage, She's in, a, she's in a mommy stage, you know, I'm working to woo her to Team Daddy, um, but mommy is stealing the show, so she 
babbles to daddy, but she speaks clearly to mommy. It's cute because she's two, right? If any of you, however, babbled like my two-year-old, it would just be flat out weird, right? Paul is saying to us, don't be a babbler, constantly speaking meaningless, frivolous stuff, speaking nonsense. That's the bad worker, number one. But notice, he says, irreverent babble. He's essentially saying, don't be that person that speaks constantly about irreverent stuff. Some translations say, irreverent empty speech. Or some say, godless chatter. So if you're a disciple maker, and we're trying to disciple people towards godliness, towards Christ, but if we're always babbling, if we're always chattering nonsense, if we're always speaking empty speech that does not honor the Lord, we have to ask the question, what does this look like for us today? What does this mean for us today? Paul, Paul says, don't quarrel about words. He says, don't, like words specifically, don't fight about words. Don't be a babbler. He's trying to get across to us to have some substance to our speech, right? Don't speak of nonsense all the time. And like we've said, watch your words. And what's interesting about this and what we can't forget, and this, you know, he says, watch your words. But then he says four to five, about four or five paragraphs earlier, at the end of chapter one, Paul, Paul says, follow the pattern of my sound words. You know, he says, he, he says, he told us to guard God's word, fight for it, to stand firm in it. So clearly, Paul understands here that words matter. He's not saying we're not to just not care about words. Clearly, we're to care about words, but we need to care about the right words, the right words. So there's, there's some words that are worth fighting for. There's some words that are worth defending. Um, but then there's just some words that are just not worth debate. He says, don't quarrel over it. Now, let me make this plain for you, okay? If God's word is overly clear about something, like the gospel, the resurrection, salvation, core beliefs of the Christian faith, truths that are very clear in God's word, those, those are things that we fight and defend. We can do everything in our ability to be as accurate as possible. We want to seek understanding and we want to sharpen one another. We want to challenge each other in love, right? We want to correct each other in love. But at the end of the day, there's some things that are in the Bible and outside of the Bible that may just not be worth fighting over. If the Bible does not speak clearly about something, about an issue, if, there's, if there seems to be a little room for debate, he says, don't fight about it. It's not worth it. We do want to seek to understand it. We want to know it. We want to, and we want to gently correct when needed, saying things like, hey, I, I don't see that in God's word. Right? That's not there. Or, hey, I understand how you believe that, but that's a little bit of a stretch. Or, you know, may, maybe making something that's gray in God's word, making something that's gray, making it a black and white issue. So let's not mix philosophy, psychology, and sociology. Let's not mix that with theology. All right, we want to study God and God's Word. God's Word is our standard, not our thoughts, our feelings, in the culture. As um, one, of my off, one of my favorite pastors, uh, Alistair Begg, says often, he says, let's keep the main things the main things, the plain things the plain things. So I'll give, I'll give you two examples of this. One uh, one is from Paul, as we still see in this text, and one is from an interaction I had last week. It's a personal uh, story, encounter. So in this text, Paul draws out more of what he's talking about. Look back at verse 16 to 18. He says, 
but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Pay attention to this part. This, this, this is the example right here. It says, Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened, and they are upsetting the faith of some. So this is a great example. Because clearly the resurrection has already happened, right? Timothy just talked about the resurrection of Christ a few verses earlier. That's what we talked last, about last week. But these two guys, they were talking about the second resurrection specifically, the resurrections of believers. You know, apparently um, some thought that they were in their post-resurrection state, right? If, so if you're like, I have no, no clue what you're talking about, uh, to, to put it plainly, they thought the world had and they believe they were already in heaven. I mean, uh, I think this is kind of sad, but it's also kind of funny. Um, I mean, just imagine these guys. They, they wake up um, believing that they're in their post-resurrection state, that they've already been raised from the dead, and he's like, ah, heaven, right? It's going to be a great day because I'm in heaven. But yet, his kids are screaming at him. He spills coffee all over him. He burns his hand in the oven, he gets angry with his wife, and then he gets into a three-car wreck onto the job that he does not like. And I don't know about you, but I'm not so sure how we get confused with this. But honestly, there's not a lot of uh, detail here. There's not a lot of evidence or, or, or talk about these specific false teachings, that where this was, how this was happening or why this was happening at the time, why they believed that. But apparently, this, was, this also wasn't the first time this happened. Um, Paul, he actually talk about, talked about the same thing happening in his letter to the Corinthian church. Uh, and as we all know, it actually wasn't, it wasn't the last time that anyone got the end of the world wrong. So um, that's kind of what has happened there. But this is, this is a little bit of a side note. Um, if someone comes up and um, is trying to tell you they know when or how the world is going to end, um, I know, just, just know that they didn't get it from the Bible because in Matthew 24, 36, Jesus says, No one knows the hour, uh, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, uh, only God knows. So that's Paul's example, right? That's the example he, he gives. And then uh, just last week, a similar thing happened to me. Um, this doesn't happen to me very often, but this actually happened last week. So I was asked to preach at an event last Sunday morning, and I was uh, talking to a guy after the service, he came from a different faith background as, as myself after I was preaching, and um, he was telling me everything that he disagreed with. You know, I just gently disagreed with him, um, guarded, you know, guarded the gospel, we talked about that, corrected his errors, you know, defended God's word. Um, and then he went on, I thought this was really, really kind of interesting, he, he went on to tell me when Jesus was going to return. Um, and again, he's not even a Christian. He doesn't even believe in Jesus. But somehow, not only did he know uh, when Jesus was going to return, but he also seemed to know the country, the city, and even the building of where Jesus was going to return. I found it very fascinating. Um, this guy, he didn't believe that Jesus was God, but yet somehow he believed that he was going to return. Um, you know, it, half of what he was saying, it kind of clashed with his own faith, uh, <laughs> faith background. And then, again, this was fascinating to me. He told me, um, he, go, he wanted to tell me what Jesus looked like. And he said, all the pictures you see of Jesus with uh, long brown hair, um, he said, they're all wrong. He said, but rather, he said, Jesus was 6'2", uh, very slim, and he had gold hair. Now, I don't know about you, I've, I've never personally seen Jesus' combine stats, so I didn't argue with him. 
I just, uh, I just smiled, right? I just kind of listened to him. Um, and I asked him how he knew that. I said, how did, how did you know this? You know, what Jesus, that you saw this? He said, well, I saw him in a dream. Instead of me arguing uh, about what Jesus looked like or when Jesus is going to return, because honestly, no, no one really knows. Um, although I am pretty confident that Jesus didn't have gold hair. Um, but maybe he did in his dream. <clears throat> but instead of me quarreling with him about this and babbling about this stuff, I just told him, I said, brother, um, it seems like Jesus is drawing you to himself. Um, you just had a dream about Jesus, and then I come in here and I preach the gospel to you about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And I told him, I said, regardless of what <clears throat> Jesus looks like, you need to trust in Christ today. Um, I, I said, you need, to, you need to consider the claims of Christ. Now, I have no clue. He didn't, nothing happened there. I have no clue what happened with him. But here's the point. There are some things that are not worth fighting over, are not worth quarreling over but what you know there's some things that are worth defending and even dying for like talking about the claims of christ and talking about the resurrection and the cross and the doctrine of grace and salvation those are things that we're worth guarding but you know those two examples they're a little bit more extreme that we don't often see in our day-to-day life uh you know and even specifically with people who don't believe the bible but i want to address a few other examples uh, more subtle examples of, of irreverent babble, godless empty speech that are far more common and I think may hit a little closer to home with many of us. Things like gossip <clears throat> or speaking poorly about someone or putting down a brother or a sister in Christ. Um, now I'm going to be honest with you. Something that I've had to personally um, watch for my own life uh, the irreverent babble in my own life is constantly fighting to see the negative in everything. This is a blessing and a curse. Um, you know, some, some of you may be wired this way too, just uh, by God's grace, you're wild, wired to be a critical thinker. That's just the way God has wired you. So I'm always thinking, every time we gather, we're always thinking, how can we make this better? Every time we preach, like, how can we make this better? How can we fix this? How can we, how can we strive? You know, in, a grow, in, a, in an organization, in a, in a process, we need processes and systems and you know, everything, you know, having a feedback culture is important for an organization, but, but something I have to watch and be on guard against is that I can find a problem with almost everything. Instead of, instead of giving words of encouragement, um, building each other up, exhorting others, my natural inclination is to find a fault. Um, but my, my mind immediately goes to see the problem or to, to, to solve the problem. But we all, have, we all have ways of irreverent babble, every single one of us, every one of us. So here's a, here's a quick, uh, incomplete list of what this could look like in your life. Maybe it's gossip or complaining, speaking discouraging words, having a negative spirit, speaking about someone behind their back, questioning everything, sowing seeds of doubt. I mean, the list could go on and on. But the thing that we need to know is that these quarreling words, it can ruin us, is what Paul says. It ruins us. They can be so destructive. So when we speak destructive words, in verse 14, like I just said, he says it ruins us. Verse 16, he says it leads people into ungodliness. And then he says it will spread like gangrene. So gangrene, gangrene is a disease that affects your limbs. And it affects your limbs because of a loss of blood flow that's happening and it spreads around the body. And then it kills if it's not removed. So Paul is saying our godless talk 
that can spread and it can destroy and if, and if, 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 and it can actually, if it doesn't kill you. If we, if we don't kill it, if we don't kill our godless talk. So brother and sister, I want to encourage us today to fight for encouraging words. Fight for truth. Don't get caught up in pointless controversies. Brothers and sisters, listen, fight to be an encourager, not a babbler. Fight to be an encourager, not a babbler. And this is just a passing note. We're, um, we're in a very content-saturated culture. Uh, I don't have to explain this. I think, I think we all kind of get this. Um, it's easier than ever to consume irreverent babble. It's easier than ever to consume godless chatter. And um, not only are the we the ones speaking, but we're also the ones that are hearing. And Paul, he warns the hearer in verse 14. He says, what we hear, he says it can ruin us. So let's, let's, be, let's be careful what we consume, right? Let's be careful uh, to fill our minds with truth. So, if that's the negative, if that's what not to do, right, then what are we to do? So the bad, you know, the bad workman, he, he kind of gave his shots in the blowdown. Um, now it's time for the good worker, the positive side of the showdown. So look at verse 15. Paul says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So I want to reiterate what I said earlier. This is often quoted for pastors, for those who are preaching and teaching. In a lot of ways, this is very true. I need this just like you need this. I need to hear this today, but we must not forget that Paul, he just told Timothy back in chapter 2, verse 2, he said to entrust to faithful men who are able to teach others also. So Paul is telling Timothy, the pastor, to remind them. He's reminding the people. He says, don't quarrel. Not to quarrel. He doesn't say pastor, present yourself. He says worker or workman, present yourself. So if you're a Christian here today, if you're a follower of Christ, you're a worker. Right? We're all laboring. We're all working hard to make disciples. We're all working to advance God's kingdom. So if we're all workers and we're all laborers, let's look at our second point, right? The good worker. So what makes a good worker? What makes a good disciple maker? If followers of Christ... Uh, we're called to make disciples, so if we're a disciple maker, uh, something we all cannot ignore if we're making disciples is that we all must teach. So I want to be clear again, making disciples, making disciples is not just content transfer, right? It's not just imparting knowledge into something, but it's certainly not less than that, right? We have to know something. What we say often here is that discipleship starts with our heads, done with our heads, so with our hearts, and it's also done with our hands. So it's our head, our hearts, and our hands. So we need to know something, right? We need to know something with our heads. We need to be transformed by it internally. It needs to work its way down to our heart. We don't want, trans we don't want information without transformation. It's got to get to our heart. But then also, if we know something, if we've been transformed by something, it should also be moved to our, to our hands, to externally, Right? There's our, there's a sense of actions, things that are done. So with that said, right, we're all teachers. Every single one of us, we, we teach. We teach our kids. We teach our friends. We teach our coworkers. We teach our spouses. We have to think about the way we teach. Right? We have to think about the way we teach. We also, when we teach, we also, when we make disciples, when we teach, we're teaching with our head, our heart, and our hands. So when we formally teach, right, we teach content. We have Bible studies. We're teaching content one-on-one, -on -one, right? 
uh, in large group settings such as this, and also when we're speaking God's word to each other in everyday conversations, right? Reminding each other of truth, pointing each other to Christ. We're constantly teaching. We teach. We also teach by example, right? With our actions, by modeling, by saying, "Hey, hey, watch me. Watch us. Watch us." We model to other how uh, how God is changing our lives. We speak. We often have to speak our challenges to each other. That's part of teaching. You know, how, we're farting, uh, how, we're, how we're fighting to be like Christ, our successes and failures. So when we confess sin and struggles, we're teaching others to do the same. If we never share our struggles, if we never share our areas of growth with those that God has called us to disciple, how are we going to learn how to grow? Right? How are we going to learn how to grow, to confess sin? We teach others right, with our head, our heart, and our hands, but more specifically from this passage... We have to teach others how, right? How are we teaching God's word to others? Everything, um, we're transformed by our hearts and our hands, right? Everything we do with our hands, we also have to understand it with our minds. So it, we start with our heads, but it cannot stop there. It has to move to our, to our hearts and our hands. So let's look back at verse 15. It says, uh, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of, of truth. So what do we do? If we're making disciples, we have to get it right. We have to handle God's word right. He says rightly handle God's word. So there's a little saying we've adopted in our preaching here. So we want to get it right. We also want to make it stick. We want to get it right. We also want to make it stick. If it's not right... We don't want it to stick. We spend a lot of time making sure we get it right. That's, that's the phrase, rightly handled. It's in the original language, it's more precisely known as to cut straight. It's the same word as orthodontist. You know, when I was a kid, I had, uh, my teeth weren't the straightest. I needed, I, needed, uh, <laughs> I needed to get my teeth fixed pretty bad. And so when we were here, you know, this, this phrase here, it says to cut straight, uh, to, to get your teeth aligned, Right? That's, what they're that's the, same, the same word originates from this word, orthodontist, to get it right, to get to a line. So when we rightly handle, when we cut straight God's word, we're making sure God's word is taught and aligned with precision and accuracy. Right? We want to be both precise and accurate. So every, every single one of us, listen, every single one of us, we want to fight to get this right. We want to be precise and we want to get it accurate. And you know what the best way for us to do that? You know how we do this? We get into God's word. We get in God's word. We actually read it. We dig in it to consistently read it with other brothers and sisters. You know, I, I strongly believe that the best way to read God's word is to do it in community. And this is, uh, this is so essential to what we do. We have to ask each other questions. We have to uh, help each other out to teach, uh, teach each other how to mind God's word. This is so important. Just three to five brothers and sisters getting around together, reading God's word together, figuring it out. We do this. We want to do this every week. We're in the process of starting something for the older kids in our church, right? You know, just, and you know what we're going to do? We're not going to do a program. Uh, we don't have anything flashy. We're going to do exactly what our adults do. We're going to read God's Word. In small groups, two or three people, our fifth and sixth graders, our middle schoolers, our high schoolers, we're going to use the exact same discipleship guide that our adults use. We need this. Our kids need this. We need to be in God's Word. We're, we're trying to raise up missionaries and church planners and disciple makers. It all starts 
with getting in God's word and letting it transform our hearts and our minds and obeying it with our heads and obeying it with our hands. So I, and I hope and pray, I hope and pray that we'll all be good students of God's word, that we would rightly handle the word of God. Every time we gather, we want to get into God's word. We want to read it, right? We want to know it. And this gets me so fired up because we have the privilege of sitting in God's word, of basking in it, being changed by it, right? This is a privilege. New City Church, we exist to see Jesus change lives and we exist to reach the world because the God's word, it transforms us. God's word is powerful. It works in us. It changes us. It's what, the, the God's word is what we have to take to the world. We want to get it right. But I want to point something out in this passage. Uh, I want to address something in this passage that directs us to our last point. Let's, read, let's look at verse 15 again. This is what it says. It says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Look down at verse 19. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal the Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Look at verse 15 again. I want to read that again. This is, there's just this, this part of it. He says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. The word approved, this could be also translated as the one who passed the test. When we have passed the test... We have no need to be ashamed. But then down in verse 19, he says, he says, the Lord knows those who are his. He says, the Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone, that everyone who names the name of the Lord, let them depart from iniquity. Let me put it plainly, plainly for you. Paul is saying, if, you're, if you claim to be a Christian, stop sinning. Right? That's what he's saying. Stop messing up. Stop being a screw up. Paul is saying, we need to pass the test. We need to stop messing up, stop sinning. But I want to draw this out in two specific ways, because this can hit home pretty hard. Because first, what Paul is getting at here, he's saying the fruit of our actions, what we do, it needs to line up with what we believe. If we call ourselves a Christian, if we call ourselves a follower of Christ, what we, what we do, it must match up with what we claim to be. If God is working in our hearts... If God is changing us, this should grow us in us a hatred for sin. For sin, we should be turning away. Right? We should be departing from iniquity, fighting to be like Jesus, continually practicing repentance. Paul said in verse two, "Entrust the faithful men." That's what he says. Entrust the faithful men. Back, in, but then part of discipleship is trusting for faith. Is testing for faithfulness. It's testing for faithfulness with our life, with with our with what we're teaching. This is vitally important to the health of our church. If people are leading and discipling others, are we actually being changed and transformed by God's word? We're asking people to imitate us as we seek to imitate Christ. But I want to point out something. This is so important because there's a lot of weight to this. On the other side of the coin, look what Paul says. He says, do yourself, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. He says, do your best to pass the test. That's what he's saying. Do your best to pass the test. Work hard, strive, give it all you've got to pass the test, to be approved by God. Paul is making it clear. We have a responsibility. 
to work hard, to be disciplined, to strive to be an approved worker, to hate our sin and to stop sinning. But you know what else Paul knows that I'm so thankful for? Paul says, do your best. (laughs) He says, do your best, fully knowing that at times you will fail. We'll all fail. We all fall short. We all still sin. Pulling from this very last verse, verse 9, it says, our iniquity iniquity will not fully depart from us. We work hard, we strive, we do our, our best, but at the end of the day, the good news of the gospel reminds us that there is only one worker who has perfectly passed the test that has perfectly presented themselves to God as one approved, and that's one man that stole the show who was the perfect worker. He never had a sin. He never had iniquity. And this leads us to our third point, the ultimate worker. You see, the best you and I we can do to present ourselves to God as one approved, it's not good enough. It's not. The only way we can be presented to God and approved is if we fully depart from iniquity, if we have no sin, if we are without sin. Brother and sisters, I don't know about you, but I've sinned today. I've messed up. I'm 100% confident that this is true of every single person of this room in this room today. We have all sinned. We have all messed up. I've done my best to depart from iniquity. I strive. I work hard to present myself to one as God who's approved. But you know what? I still sin. I still sin. My sin says to God, I'm not approved. Just one sin. It means I can't pass the test. Just one of your sins. One mean comment, one poor word, one little lie. And because of it, you fail the test. I fail the test. (laughs) And this is why the gospel is such good news. Because we can't pass the test. We can't be approved. But Jesus passed the test for us. Right? Jesus is our approval. When we put our trust in Jesus, we can try our best. We can do our best. We can strive. We can work hard. But we're presented to God through Jesus as an approved worker. Listen, God approves of us not based on our works, but on Jesus' works. Jesus went to the cross on our behalf. Brothers and sisters, this is good news. This is good news. We couldn't. We can't. We can't pass the test. Jesus passed it for us. I don't know about you, but I can often relate to the bad worker in this passage. I quarrel over words. I can speak godless chatter. Sometimes I don't rightly handle God's word. And I'll be honest with you, if any, I'd be nervous of any pastor that says they get it right all the time. Right? We all do our best. We strive. We want to get it right. We fight to get it right. But at the end of the day, there's only one worker who fully presents themselves, fully approved to God. And his name is Jesus. Right? His name is Jesus. Let us not, let's not trust ourselves as the good worker, but rather let's trust in the one who was the perfectly good worker. He was the ultimate worker. Let's put our trust in Christ, in the works of Christ. With that said, if you're not a Christian here today, Hear this. Outside of Jesus, and this is, this is really hard to swallow, but this is clear. If you do not believe in Jesus, the scriptures are clear. God does not approve of you. You fail the test. The Bible 
says that outside of, children, outside of Jesus, we're considered children of wrath. One sin, one mistake, that's enough for us to fail the test. We fail. One mean word spoken, that's enough to be considered not approved by God. This is so hard to hear, but it's true. All of us, every single one of us in this room, we're in desperate need of someone to rescue us. We need someone to pass a test for us. We all need someone to stand in our place that God approves of so that we too can be approved of by God. And his name is Jesus. You can trust in Jesus today. And this is such great news because within an instant, instantly, when you truly believe in your heart that Jesus rose from the dead, that his life covered your life, that his death was sufficient for the consequences of your sin, when you believe it in your, in your heart and you share it with someone, when you proclaim to the world that you believe this, within, a, within an instant, God looks at you and says, well done, good and faithful servant. I approve of you. You've passed the test. Trust in him today. Trust Christ today. Do it. Now, if you're a Christian here today, let's be a people that watch our words. Let's be careful with our words. Let's be a people that seek to dig into God's word and be careful with the word of God. Let's be people that strive and work hard and labor and, do, and try to do our best at all of this. But let's not forget that we can rest in knowing that God looks at us through the, Christ, that through the cross and says to us, Brother and sister, you're approved. My beloved son, you're approved. My beloved daughter, you're approved. Your iniquity, your sin, it's departed from you. Listen to that. Listen to this. We need to hear this today. Through the cross, because of Christ, your iniquity, your sin, listen, it has departed from you. It has departed from you. No matter what you've done, no matter your life, no matter what, you, what brought you in here today, what you're holding on to, we can all glory in the cross and we can sing praises to God because God says to you, brother, God says to you, sister, your sin is departed from you. Praise the Lord. God says to us through the cross, I'm proud of you. You've passed the test. Come and rest in the comfort of my arms. Come and rest of your, in, the, in the comfort of your loving Father. Let God continue to wash you with his words. Brother and sister, rest in that today. Through the cross, God looks at you and says, you're approved. You're approved by God. That's enough. The cross was enough. Right? The shackles are gone. And we can run in the freedom of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we, we're approved when we sit in the glory of the cross, when we trust in Christ, when we rest in the gospel, when we rest in what Christ has done for us on the cross. Father, we, we can sit and we can trust no matter what, what we bring in here today, no matter what weight we hold, no matter what words we've spoken poorly of. We can rest and know, Father, you approve of us. You say, "Good, well done, good and faithful servant.
Father, let us believe that today. Let us proclaim that today. Let us, let us sing that to you today. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.